All right, good morning. All right, kids, where are you guys at? Can you guys raise your hands up? All right, so I got two, two questions for you as we start. The, the first question is, how many of you are short? All right, how, how about how many of you are shorter than me? That's, that's all of you, right? Okay, second question. How many of you have ever climbed a tree before? Okay, third question. When you climb the tree and you're in the tree, are you taller or further off the ground than you are when you just stand up? Yes? If you say yes, raise your hand. Okay, if you say no, you need to find a bigger tree to, to climb. It's a tiny tree. All right, the reason why we're talking about how, how tall or short you are or, or trees is because in our passage today, we, we meet this guy named Zacchaeus. And Zacchaeus, we find out, is, is a short guy. And as he's there in his town, Jesus is, is coming into his, into his city. And he wants to be able to see Jesus, but the problem is, is there's a whole bunch of people in front of him. And he's short, and so he can't, can't see over the people to see Jesus. And he wants to be able to see Jesus. So Zacchaeus, even though he was short, he was a pretty smart guy. And he thinks, I'm going to run ahead of this crowd, and I'm going to find a tree, and I'm going to climb it. So he climbs up in the tree so that when Jesus passes by, he can see that. Uh, he can see him. And the reason why that's kind of, the reason why that story is probably in our Bible is because during this time, during Jesus' time, when when Zacchaeus lived on the earth, it was really weird for a grown-up to climb a tree. Maybe, maybe not that different than today. How many of you have ever seen grown-ups climb trees? That's not your mom or dad. So it's less common, right? You don't just see a bunch of grown-ups out there climbing trees. Zacchaeus, it was a really weird thing for him to do to climb a tree. It was like, it was undignified. It was, it was strange. People looked at him weird and said, why is that short guy up there in that tree? But he did that because he didn't care what people think, thought of him. He just wanted to see Jesus. Last week in our passage, we talked about, about how Jesus receives little children. He, he wants people to be able to bring kids to him, and he values and upholds and uh, uh, compliments childlike faith. Zacchaeus, in climbing the tree to be able to see Jesus, he is acting like a child, but he's doing it because he has faith in Jesus. He wants to see Jesus. So kids, I would encourage you to go home and talk to your parents about the ways in which uh, you guys can uh, exercise a similar kind of childlike faith, a, a similar kind of trust in Jesus like Zacchaeus. Parents, talk to your kids about the ways in which we should be more like Zacchaeus. We should be willing to look strange to other people for the sake of us following Jesus. Uh, if you would, go ahead and open up your, past, your, your Bibles to Luke chapter 19. Uh, today we're going to be reading verses 1 through 27. Again, that's Luke chapter 19. If you don't have a Bible, there'll be some slides up behind me that have these verses on them. We're going to read verses 1 through 27. He entered Jericho and was passing through, and behold, there was a man named Zacchaeus. He was a chief tax collector and was rich. And he was seeking to see who Jesus was, but on account of the crowd, he could not because he was small in stature. So he ran on ahead and climbed up a sycamore tree to see him, for he was about to pass that way. And when Jesus came to the place, he looked up and said to him, Zacchaeus, hurry down and come down, for I must stay at your house today. So he hurried and came down and received him joyfully. And when they saw it, they all grumbled. 
He has gone in to be the guest of a man who is a sinner. And Zacchaeus stood and said to the Lord, Behold, Lord, the half of my goods I give to the poor. And if I have defrauded anyone of anything, I restore it fourfold. And Jesus said to him, Today salvation has come to this house, since he also is a son of Abraham. For the Son of Man came to seek and save the lost. As they heard these things, he proceeded to tell them a parable, because he was near to Jerusalem, and because they supposed that the kingdom of God was to appear immediately. He said, therefore, a nobleman went into a far country to receive for himself a kingdom and then return. Calling ten of his servants, he gave them ten minas and said to them, Engage in business until I come. But his citizens hated him and sent a delegation after him, saying, We do not want this man to reign over us. When he returned, having received the kingdom, he ordered these servants to whom he had given the money to be called to him, that he might know what they had gained by doing business. The first came before him, saying, Lord, your mina has made ten minas more. And he said to him, Well done, good servant. Because you have been faithful in a very little, you shall have authority over ten cities. And the second came, saying, Lord, your mina has made five minas. And he said to him, And you are to be over five cities. Then another came, saying, Lord, here is your mina, which I kept laid away in a handkerchief, for I was afraid of you, because you are a severe man. You take what you did not deposit and reap what you did not sow. He said to him, I will condemn you with your own words, you wicked servant. You knew that I was a severe man, taking what I did not deposit and reaping what I did not sow. Why then did you not put my money in the bank, and at my coming I might have collected it with interest? And he said to those who stood by, Take the mina from him and give it to the one who has ten minas. And they said to him, Lord, he has ten minas. I tell you that everyone, to everyone who has, more will be given. And from the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away. But as for these enemies of mine, who did not want me to reign over them, bring them here and slaughter them before me. Let's pray together this morning. Father, we thank you for your word this morning, that that in it we learn more about who you are and what you've done for us and what you're doing for us, and we learn more about who we are uh, in light of that. We thank you that you sent your Son into this world to become like us, to to, uh, be our substitute, and that you sent your Spirit to inspire men like Luke to, to write down the things that he did and the things that he said so that thousands of years later we can benefit from them together. Father, we pray that you would send your Spirit this morning to help us to understand and, and benefit from and apply your Word this morning. We pray that you would use it to, to convict us where we need to be convicted, to encourage us where we need to be encouraged, and that you would would stir in us the affections we have for you and for your son and for what you have done for us. We pray that you would just continue to to meet with us this morning. It's in your name we pray, Jesus. Amen. So in this passage this morning, we kind of got these these two chunks. We've got this this story about Zacchaeus, and then we have this parable of of the ten minas. So we're going to start with Zacchaeus. Last week when we left off, uh, Jesus had kind of just gotten to the outskirts of Jericho, and there was that blind man there that Jesus healed. And so he's, he's getting closer and closer to Jerusalem. He's been on this journey from Galilee to Jerusalem for a while, as we've been in Luke. And so now he's at Jericho. Jericho is about 17 miles east of Jerusalem, so that's about as close as Frankfurt, Missouri is. So Jesus is 
is close. Uh, in our passage today, he enters Jericho. In our passage next week, Jesus will be entering Jerusalem. So we've kind of finally completed this, this point of the gospel of Luke as he moves from Galilee to Jerusalem. So as he's coming into Jericho, there's this crowd that gathers, and Luke tells us that there's this dude named Zacchaeus, who was a chief tax collector, and he was rich. And he wanted to be able to see Jesus, but he can't see Jesus because he's of small stature. He's a, he's a short guy. He can't see over the people in front of him. And so he decides he's going to run ahead. He's going to climb up a sycamore tree so that he can see Jesus when he comes by. And I think it's important uh, for us to remember that right, the, when we saw tax collectors before in the Gospel of Luke, we know that they're kind of, if for the, the people, they're, they're seen as the bad guys. Uh, The people of Israel did not like the tax collectors because they worked with the enemy. And Zacchaeus being a chief tax collector is kind of like a chief bad guy. And so that's going to come up as we walk through this parable. So Jesus is passing by Zacchaeus, who's now up in a tree. And he says, Zacchaeus, hurry and come down, for I must stay at your house today. So Jesus is inviting himself over to Zacchaeus' house because Zacchaeus has kind of done this extraordinary thing, this strange thing, getting up in the tree to see him. Um, And he says that Zacchaeus hurried and came down and received him joyfully. Zacchaeus is excited, right? Remember, he just wanted to be able to see Jesus, and he didn't think that was going to happen. But now Jesus has seen him and invites himself over to his house. So he's going to get to be the host for Jesus. But what happens is the crowds grumble. They see what's happening, and they complain about it, saying he has gone in to be the guest of a man who is a sinner. They are upset about what is happening. And Here's a place where I think in Luke's gospel we can kind of, kind of zoom out from the text and think about what's happening behind this passage. There's another place in the gospel of Luke where Luke is taking time to talk about Jesus interacting with someone, not just who is an outcast, but specifically someone who is wealthy, someone who is rich. And the reason why that matters is because way back in Luke chapter 1, uh, we talked about how the gospel of Luke was written to a guy named Theophilus. Now, for a number of reasons that we see in Luke's gospel, most scholars uh, assume and and think, and rightfully so, that Theophilus was a rich guy. And the reason why I bring that up is because it's really interesting that more than any other gospel, Luke especially talks about issues of wealth. He talks about wealth and how Jesus interacts with rich people. We saw this just last week with the rich young ruler, where Jesus calls him away from his wealth and he refuses. And so he doesn't follow Jesus. He leaves sad. And now here today, he's interacting with Zacchaeus, who is also a rich man. And the reason why I bring that up is because during this time, as people are writing, paper is expensive, right? It's not like today where we can just write an ebook and there's just like an endless supply of pages for us to write. We can make it as long as we possibly want in the hopes that people will maybe read it. But for for them, for Matthew and Mark and Luke and John, they have to choose what they're going to include in their Gospels. And in fact, John and his Gospel say that like all the books in the world could not contain everything that Jesus did and taught. And so Luke is, is specifically choosing stories that are relevant to the person that he's writing to, Theophilus. And the reason why I bring that up is because I think it helps inform us as we try to be people who share the Gospel with other people. Right? There are, are not 
often situations where we can sit down with someone and explain the entire gospel, right? We can't go through the whole book of Luke with people, or we can't go through the whole book of Romans with people, but we do have opportunities to take a story that Jesus did in, when he was on the earth, like this encounter that he has with Zacchaeus, and explain that to people, to give them one aspect of the gospel rather than the whole gospel that relates to their life. And that is what we see Luke doing in his gospel. He's taking specific stories of Jesus and including them in his gospel so that he can minister to Theophilus specifically. And so when we talk about sharing the gospel as a church, don't feel that if you don't have an opportunity that week to share the whole gospel with someone that you're failing, right? If you have an opportunity to share part of who Jesus is with someone else, that's still good news. That's still us sharing the good news with other people. And so we should be faithful to do that when we have opportunity and not viewing ourselves as failures because we, you know, can't unpack Romans for somebody in one sitting in a passing conversation that we have with them while we're at work. We should be sharing the good news of who Jesus is in a way that connects to that person, just like Luke does with Theophilus. So back in the passage, right? Jesus is going over to his house. The crowd is grumbling. Uh, They're saying, right, he's gone in to be the guest of a man who is a sinner. Now, there's a couple problems with this. The first problem is that the people that are complaining are also sinners, right? God tells us in his word that we should be people who who do uh, everything without grumbling or complaining. These people are grumbling. They are sinning. They are disobeying God by how they react to Jesus going to Zacchaeus' house. And so they're saying he's going into the house of a sinner without recognizing that they're sinners too. But what they say is true, right? Zacchaeus is a sinner. And Jesus is going to his house, Jesus is going to his house even though he's a sinner because Jesus knows what comes next. The crowds don't know. The complainers don't know. But Jesus knows what's coming next. And look what happens next in verse 8. Zacchaeus stood there and said to the Lord, Behold, Lord, the half of my goods I give to the poor. And if I have defrauded anyone of anything, I restore it fourfold. So what's happening here is that Zacchaeus is demonstrating faith and repentance in Jesus. He is changing his life in light of what Jesus is doing for him. In the light of who Jesus is, in the light of Jesus in front of him, he is repenting of his past, saying, I'm going to give away half my wealth. If I've defrauded anybody of anything, I'm going to pay it back fourfold. He's going to offer restitution. He is going to make things right as much as possible for him. He's not like the rich young ruler who clings to his wealth instead of Jesus. He clings to Jesus and gives away his wealth. He is clearly making the right choice in this situation. He is demonstrating faith and repentance. Jesus says in verse 9, in light of what Zacchaeus has done, in light of Zacchaeus' response to Jesus, Jesus says, Today salvation has come to this house, since he also is the son of Abraham. Now Jesus is talking to Zacchaeus, but he's talking to Zacchaeus in front of the crowd. And so there's, there's stuff in Jesus' statement that applies to Zacchaeus, and there's stuff in his statement that applies to the crowds. The first thing is that he announces that Zac- Zacchaeus is saved, right? He is a beneficiary of Jesus' salvation. Salvation has come to his house. Right? He woke up in the morning and he was lost, but now he is saved. The second thing that he says is that he also is a son of Abraham. This is the part that's kind of meant more for the other people there. Uh, the reason why 
I think Jesus is directing this at the crowd is because tax collectors were seen as outsiders. They were seen as outcasts. They, they were traitors to Israel because they were working with the enemy. And Zacchaeus, as the chief tax collector, is the chief traitor. He is the one that they all would not have liked. They would have seen him as an outsider even in their city. But Jesus is pointing out that Zacchaeus is a child of Abraham. By his faith that he's putting in Jesus, he is showing himself to be more like Abraham than these people that are complaining. He is living his life by faith in the promises of God, who's Jesus in front of him. He's not grumbling and thinking that all that matters is their heritage. He is trusting in Jesus. He is living by faith. And as he does that, he is showing himself to truly be a child of Abraham. Next, Jesus explains why salvation has come to Zacchaeus' house. It's come to his house, he says, for the Son of Man came to seek and save the lost. Because Jesus came, because the Son of Man came to seek and save the lost, that is why salvation has come. Zacchaeus was lost, but now he is saved. Right? He woke up in this morning uh, in Jericho and had no idea what was going to happen to him this day. He was lost, right? He, he was a tax collector. He was rich. He had his wealth. He had no idea what was going to happen. He had no idea that Jesus was going to roll into town. He had no idea he was going to find a tree and climb it just so that he could see him. He had no idea that Jesus was going to come and tell him to get out of the tree and he was coming over his house. He had no idea that he was going to give away his wealth and offer to pay people back four times over. He had no idea that was going to happen because he was lost. But the story ends with him being saved because Jesus came to seek out those who are lost and save them. And right now, right now, in our families, in this city, in this world, there are people like Zacchaeus who are lost and do not know it. But Jesus came to save those kinds of people. And for some of them, they are going to have days like Zacchaeus. They are going to wake up lost. And by the end of that day, they are going to be saved by him. And it's going to be because he uses people like us to walk in the good works that he has prepared beforehand. Because Jesus came to seek and save the lost. That is who he is, and he still does that. The next little chunk we have today is of this, this parable of the ten minas. And at the beginning of the parable, he tells us the purpose. This is why he's telling this parable. Because he was near to Jerusalem and because they supposed that the kingdom of God was to appear immediately. So he's getting closer to Jerusalem and these people that are around him think that the kingdom of God is about to show up right now because Jesus is going to enter into Jerusalem. They think he's just going to roll in and everything's going to change. And so he tells them this parable to teach them something different. So we should expect to learn some things from this parable about the kingdom of God and how it's going to roll out. And so he says that there's a nobleman, and the nobleman is going to go into a far country to get a kingdom for himself and come back. Uh, and as he goes out to get this kingdom, he calls his servants before them. And Luke says that he gave them ten minas. Now this is different than the parable of the talents in Matthew. A talent is a lot more money. Here, Amina is about three months' wages. So he gives them three months' wages, and then he goes on his way. And then in verse 14, we find out that the citizens don't like this guy. This nobleman has come, but the people reject him. They don't want him to be king over them. And so they're unhappy. They're upset that he's going to get a kingdom and bring it back because they reject him as king. This guy, though, doesn't care about their rejection. He goes, he gets his kingdom, he brings it back, 
And he calls his servants before him who, who have had these minas. He entrusted them with a mina. And so he calls them, and the first one shows up and says that he's made 10 more minas. So he's taken that three months' wages, and he's made 30 months' wages. He has done a great job. He's been a great steward of the mina that was entrusted to him. And this, the king says, Well done, good servant, because you have been faithful in very little. You shall have authority over 10 cities. So this is a, a massive increase in reward. Right? He had three months' wages. He turned it into 30 months' wages. And then he's in charge of 10 cities. That's a lot. The next guy says that he took that one mina and turned it into five minas. And the king says, okay, you'll be over five cities. The next servant shows up and says, here is your one mina, which I have laid away in a handkerchief. Uh, hopefully it was a clean and not previously used handkerchief. But he lays it away because he says, I was afraid of you because you are a severe man. You take what you did not deposit and reap what you did not sow. The king is not happy about the poor stewardship of this servant with one mina. He says, I will condemn you with your own words, you wicked servant. You knew that I was a severe man taking what I did not deposit and reaping what I did not sow. Why then did you not put my money in the bank and at my coming I might have collected it with interest? He says to those that said, buy, take the mina from him and give it to the guy that has 10 minas. They're shocked by this. They say, Lord, he has 10 minas. And the king responds, I tell you that everyone who has, more will be given. But from the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away. And then last, but as for these enemies of mine who did not want me to come reign over them, bring them here and slaughter them before me. So it escalates quickly at the end and then just ends. There's no explanation for, for what's kind of taken place here at the very end. So he takes the mina from the one guy, gives it to the guy that has ten, and then the people that have rejected him as king, he calls them in and, and slaughters them. The first thing we need to remember is that this is a parable, right? So we don't want to push any of these details too far because it's a parable. It's not Jesus saying this is exactly how it's going to work. Um, but I do think that there are things that we can learn from this parable about the kingdom of God. Remember, that's why Jesus is telling this parable. He's telling it because there were people there in his presence during that time that thought that as soon as he rolled into Jerusalem, the kingdom of God was going to come. And so he tells them this parable to teach them something different. And so the first thing that we can take from this parable is that Jesus taught that the kingdom of God was not going to come immediately upon his entrance into Jerusalem. He was going to leave and then bring his kingdom back in its fullness. And so there's going to be a time in between what happens in Jerusalem and his kingdom coming in its fullness. That's the time we're in right now. So he's telling them that through this parable. Uh, the second thing I think we can learn from this parable is that he, the king, Jesus, will reward those servants who are faithful stewards of the things that he's entrusted them with. Right? He entrusted 10 of his servants with minas. We know what happened to three of them. We don't know about the other seven. But what we get from these three is that those who are faithful with what they've been entrusted with get rewarded. The guy who made 10 minas gets rewarded with the authority over 10 cities. The guy who made five minas gets rewarded with authority over five cities. And so we can have confidence from this parable that Jesus will reward those of his servants who are good stewards with the things that they've been entrusted with. The primary thing that we've been entrusted with as his followers is the good news of who he is and what he's done. And so I think we will be rewarded based on what we've done with that news. The second, or the third thing that we can take away from this is that those who are not faithful stewards 
are not going to be rewarded in the same way as those who are faithful stewards. He says, the king says here, uh, that he will, to everyone who has, more will be given, but from the one who has not, even what he has will be taken. So this is after he takes the mina away from the handkerchief guy and gives it to the ten minas guy. He says, everyone who has uh, will be given more, but from the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away. And so the question we should ask here is, is what is the, the has and the have nots? What, what does the one guy have that the other guy doesn't have? I think what he has is faithfulness. Right? He was faithful with the mina that was given to him and was a good steward of it and turned it into ten more minas. The guy who took it and stuck it in a handkerchief was not a faithful steward of it. And so to the ones who are faithful stewards, more is going to be entrusted to them so that they can faithfully steward that. To those who are not faithful stewards, it's going to be taken from them and given to people who will faithfully steward it. And so Jesus here is calling his servants to good and faithful stewardship while he is away until he brings his kingdom back. The last thing that we see here uh, is the, the servants or the, the, the people that rejected him being punished. But before we move on, I think it's important for us to recognize that there is this, this tension uh, in the New Testament and in our understanding of the gospel between our position uh, as God's sons and daughters in Jesus through our adoption in him uh, and our role as his servants, right? And so uh, when we see a passage like this that, that emphasizes the servant part of our relationship with Jesus. It, it might make us kind of feel strange. We might wonder, how does, how does this one servant getting authority over 10 cities mesh with the fact that he is receiving everything from God as a, a co-heir of Christ, right? Because we put our faith in Jesus, when we put our faith in Jesus, when we put our trust in him, we become sons and daughters of God. That means that God loves us. He's pleased with us all of the time, regardless of what we do, not because of what we do, but because of Jesus, right? If we're in Jesus, when God looks at us, he doesn't see us, he sees Jesus. And that's a good thing for us, because Jesus is a lot better looking than we are, right? He is righteous, and we are not righteous. And so when God looks at us, if we are in Christ, he sees us as righteous, even though we're not, because he sees Jesus instead of us. But there's also this tension in the New Testament that calls us to be servants. We're sons, but we're also servants. And we're, as servants, we're called to be good stewards. We're called to walk in obedience. We're called to faithfully uh, obey in with what he's entrusted us with. We're called to walk in the good works that he's prepared beforehand for us. And when we don't do those things, it displeases God. When we sin, when we fall short, when we don't share the gospel, when we're given opportunities to share the gospel, when we don't do what God calls us to, when we are unfaithful stewards of what he's given to us, it is displeasing to him. And so there's this, this tension, and I think that one of the ways we see that is in a passage like this where he emphasizes that those who are more faithful stewards will be rewarded more, and those who are less faithful stewards will get a smaller reward or won't be rewarded at all. They'll have what's taken to them and given to someone who is a faithful steward. And so we want to uphold both of these themes in tension and recognize that God, because we're in Christ, is pleased with us. And our disobedience or, or obedience doesn't change that pleasure that he has with us because we're in Jesus. But we also can please him through our obedience. And we want to be people who does that. Does that. And I get that that seems like I'm saying two things that shouldn't fit together, two things that should be in contradiction or should be in tension, but that's part of the, the paradox and mystery of the gospel that we get to trust in, that we get to walk in. 
And even though it's complicated, even though it doesn't make as much sense as we want it to, that doesn't mean that we don't see these things in the New Testament and shouldn't believe both of them at the same time. If that was confusing to you and you want to talk more about that, that's something that we should talk more about because it's not something that we can explain and figure out in a five-minute section of a sermon on Sunday morning. It's something that we need to tease out together as we work to obey and wrestle with the gospel together. Um, But what we get in this passage with Zacchaeus and with this parable of the ten minas is we get more and more glimpses of who Jesus is in the Gospel of Luke. Right? That's, why Jesus, or that's why Luke wrote the Gospel of Luke. It's so that he could put Jesus in front of Theophilus, in front of other people, so that they could see who he is and what he's done. Just like Zacchaeus wanted to climb up that tree so he could see who Jesus is, the Gospel of Luke gives us that opportunity to see Jesus. And in this passage, we see Jesus who came to seek and save the lost who came to enter a city and change some guy's life forever. We see Jesus who says he's going to bring his kingdom back. See Jesus who's going to reward those who are faithful stewards. See Jesus who's going to come and he's going to punish those who reject him as king. We get to see more and more of who Jesus is from the Gospel of Luke. And we're going to get to do that again and again and again as we continue our journey through this Gospel. Uh, This morning... I would encourage you, before we take the Lord's Supper, if, if you're new at BC or if this is your first time here, uh, since we've been kind of doing things different with COVID, one of the things we've been doing differently is the Lord's Supper. Normally we have a couple tables up front, but today what we have is there's, there's stuff, uh, a little pre-manufactured cup out there on the table in the Y, and if you didn't get a chance to grab one when you came in, I would encourage you to take some time in a minute to do that. But we celebrate the Lord's Supper every single Sunday as a church. And we do that because we believe that the most important thing we need from, uh, from our church, from our church body, is a continual reminder of who Jesus is and what he's done. And the Lord's Supper is another way for us to do that. It's a vivid reminder that Jesus came and his body was broken for us. That's what the bread represents. His blood was shed for us. That's what the juice represents. We take the Lord's Supper because it's another way for us to preach the gospel to ourselves and us to preach the gospel to one another. And so today, I would encourage you to take some time in think about this picture of Jesus we get from Luke 19, 1 through 27. To ask the Spirit to, to show you the ways in which you aren't trusting in Him. You're trusting in yourself. You're looking to other things or other people for what only He can give you and that you would repent of those things and trust in Jesus as you remind yourself by celebrating the Lord's Supper that He came and died for you and it's His work that counts, not yours. Let's pray together and then there'll be some time for us to celebrate the Lord's Supper as a church. Jesus, we thank you that you came to seek and save the lost. And that there's there's no shame for us being sinners because it is sinners who you came to save. So we pray that you would help us to to turn from our sin and to turn towards you, that we would repent and believe. We pray that you would remind us this morning 
that you are coming again and that as we celebrate the Lord's Supper, we proclaim your death until you return. And in the meantime, you call us to be your faithful stewards, to, to, to steward well, to be responsible with what you've entrusted us with. And so we pray that you would send your spirit to show us ways in which you are calling us to more faithful stewardship. Whether that's with the gospel or with our, our families or with our homes or with our jobs, that you would show the ways in which we are not stewarding what you've given to us and help us to be faithful in these things. Not so that we can earn a place in your presence, but because we already have it, because we're already your sons and daughters. May we walk in the good works that you have prepared beforehand for us. Pray that you would be with us now as we uh, continue to worship you in our service this morning. Amen.